Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 55. Assignment Earth. Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Mission Log is one show with two guys looking for three things. Messages, morals, and meanings in each episode of Star Trek, and whether the episodes stand the test of time. So that actually makes four things. Oh yeah, we got five on it. We got your six, and this week, we've got Gary Seven to boot. It's Assignment Earth. Now let's see, the title makes eight. Uh, should we do one more? Now I think eight is enough. Man, wow. Way, way to go, Ken. That was a long way to go. That was a really long way, but it was, boy, did it pay off in the end. Yeah, I, well, I, I, I kind of doubt it. Maybe people that could tell us, John, if they thought that that was, you know, worth that, that long, long walk. All right. Well, they can tell us by reaching us and becoming part of the discussion on either Facebook, Skype, or Twitter. The handle is Mission Log Pod. That's Mission Log Pod. You can even call us at 323-522-5641. You can email us at missionlog at roddenberry.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And we should, of course, uh, tell people about our website as well, missionlogpodcast.com. It is a fine-looking website, isn't it? It is a fine-looking website. It changes from week to week. That's where people can find some of the uh, discovered documents that we talk about. Uh, we have we have T-shirts that we sell there, or at least we did back in the day. Who knows by the time people unearth this, you know, 50, 100, 150 years from now. But <laughs> once upon a time at missionlogpodcast.com, we sold T-shirts. Yeah. Maybe that should be our T-shirt, our next T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> very, very meta, very... Very time hoppy. Speaking of which, Assignment Earth. All right, Ken. So it is time for that thing that I do, and that is trivia. And as I think everybody, well, most everybody listening to this show will know, Assignment Earth was the attempt for Star Trek and particularly Gene Roddenberry to create a spinoff TV series. Um, And that's a pretty wise decision, given that Star Trek had barely escaped cancellation twice, as we know with the end of the first season and approaching the end of the second season. So why not? If you are the head of a TV show and you think that you're about to be pulled from the air, well, try to slip another show on the air as fast as you can. Makes sense to me. Now, it was pitched as a here and now story as opposed to the hard sci-fi of Star Trek. It relied more on intrigue and kind of the spy genre. Uh, than Star Trek did. Gene actually saw it more as a have-gone-will-travel for the modern era. Um, The character name changed. He was originally Anthony Seven and not Gary Seven. And it's interesting, I I don't know if you were aware of this or you'd kind of heard inklings of this, Ken, but a lot of people that I talk to point out the similarities between the Gary Seven character and Doctor Who. Um, He is a time traveler, He is, and even though he is descended from Earthlings, uh, he was raised on a different planet, um, and they had kind of their own evolution, their own technology. He even has that little device, the Servo, which uh, a lot of people say is kind of like a sonic screwdriver. But here's the thing. There's 
really no evidence that this played any part in the development or decisions about Assignment Earth. Now, there may have been some knowledge uh, from the producers about this quirky British show that had been on for a few years, uh, Doctor Who premiered in 1962, but um, there's really nothing in the notes. There's not even good indication that Doctor Who was available to be played anywhere for the producers of uh, Star Trek that early on. Well, wait a minute. One of them might have traveled, though. And the other thing is, I, I will say, I mean, I'm going to argue both for it being Doctor Who based and against it being Doctor okay, Who based. Okay, go right ahead. Uh, for it being Doctor Who based, it's not like there was a wall between here and the UK. So you say there's no way that they, I mean, there's no evidence that they could have viewed it. I mean, they, they could have gone to the UK. Well, sure. I mean, that, and, that would be, yeah, that, that would be one of the only ways. But it's not like this was the era of videotapes and. Right, uh, right, right. Yeah. Right. Now, the other thing, though, that I will say could argue against it, he's not a time traveler. Well, I, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a very good point. And that, that is kind of a, uh, a, a distinction there to be made. Now, the, the alien race had found Gary Seven or found Earth some 6,000 years ago and right. raised these people and sent them back to Earth periodically. Uh, so the, the extent of his powers, uh, well, may have been explored much more deeply had the assignment Earth TV show actually taken off. Um, it is interesting to note that the scenes with Gary Seven were shot to be separate. And you notice that in this episode of Star Trek, there's very little interplay between him and Kirk and Spock. Only a few key scenes were there together. And if you look really closely, you can actually tell the places that that could have been edited out in order to build what was the intention, a 20-minute promo reel to show off the adventures of Gary Seven. So you could actually lift the plot line of Gary Seven right out of this episode of Assignment Earth, make it its own show, and then that would have been the pitch reel for the network. Um, let's focus a little bit on some of the key players here. Uh, Art Wallace. He was a writer and producer. He wrote the Star Trek episode Obsession, uh, plus he wrote several episodes of Dark Shadows, an episode of Space 1999. He actually got his start with Tom Corbett, Space Cadet. Um, and we also want to mention Robert Lansing, who uh, plays Gary Seven in this episode. He's best known for 12 O'Clock High, um, and he also played the character of Control on The Equalizer. Do you remember that show from the 80s, uh, starring Edward Woodward? Uh, I remember that show happening. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't watch it, so I didn't recognize uh, Robert Lansing from that. Yeah, it was a very, very cool show. Uh, great soundtrack by uh, Stuart Copeland. Um, but yeah, so that, that, that was kind of where I knew him from was from the eighties from the equalizer. Uh, also worth mentioning that Terry Garr, uh, special guest star in this episode does not like talking about her foray into Star Trek, which is really too bad. Uh, but she can be found quoted, uh, frequently if you do an internet search talking about how she does not like talking about Star Trek. So it's kind of uh, a weird relationship, a weird experience for her on that show. Many, many details uh, can be dredged up about that. Speaking of details, uh, we have kind of uh, a little, something a little bit different for our discovered documents for this episode. We actually have a, a treasure trove of discovered documents in the plural. Um, we have the original kind of pitch letter the uh, the description of what assignment earth would be and i found that to be really fascinating we're going to publish a few pages of the original script 
for Assignment Earth, the pilot episode. Um, we're not going to publish the whole thing. We're just going to give you a little taste of it. Um, and then we have some other uh, pieces like uh, a memo from Gene Roddenberry talking about uh, sort of gearing up for production, wanting to have a production meeting about this show. And uh, we also have call sheets from the Star Trek episode, Assignment Earth. So there's a ton of stuff to look at. Do go check it out at missionlogpodcast.com. Other titles that could have been used in the number game, The One, Two of a Kind, Three Men and a Baby, The Fantastic Four, The Five Heartbeats, Six Feet Under. That brings us to Gary Seven and Atis. Seriously, enough. Prologue. The Enterprise has gone back in time. I know. Late 20th century Earth. Surprise, surprise. The mission? Historical observation. They have to find out how the planet survived desperate problems in the year 1968. Hey, wait a minute. That's today when this show was first broadcast. Suddenly, shift to the left, shift to the right. Spock says the Enterprise has inadvertently intercepted a very powerful transporter beam. Kirk argues that that technology didn't exist in 1968, but Spock argues back, this is happening. Kirk will be right down. Spock says the beam is generating from 1,000 light years away. Scotty argues that that's impossible. They can't even do that in the 23rd century. This is happening. Onto the transporter pad beams a guy in a 1960s business suit with a skinny tie and a cat. Well, I don't think anybody expected those. Act 1. The credits after the opening credits tell us that he is Mr. Seven. Though you can call him Gary Seven. Not Gary, not Mr. Seven... Gary Seven. He wants to know why he's been intercepted. Kirk calls for security. Gary Seven demands Kirk identify himself and his ship. Kirk does, including the fact that the Enterprise is from Earth. Gary Seven argues that that's impossible. In this time period, hey, you've got a Vulcan. You're from the future. You need to beam me down to Earth right now. Yeah, says Kirk with a couple of security guards at his side now. How about you say who you are? Gary Seven explains that he's an Earthman from the 20th century. He knows his beaming about the galaxy is anomalous, but he's been living on another planet. A really advanced planet. A really advanced secret planet. Look, this is my time, not yours. I need to get to Earth. You need to beam me down to Earth right now. If you don't, you and the Earth are doomed. Yeah, this is a problem for Kirk. See, Gary Seven could be an alien invader from the future. Kirk will need proof before he sets him loose. He orders security to confine Gary Seven, though Seven begins a one-man brawl, knocking down two security guards, shaking off Spock's nerve pinch like it was nothing, standing up to a stun from Kirk's phaser. Okay, now that actually did get him. Gary Seven is taken to confinement, and Kirk orders a medical workup on Gary Seven. In the meantime, everybody's kind of stumped. There's no telling where Gary Seven is from, though Bones will eventually say that he's a very healthy human. Perhaps too healthy if there is such a thing. As for why he's here, 1968 was heavy, man. On the calendar for that day, an important assassination, an equally important government coup in Asia, and the launching of an orbital platform for nuclear weapons by the U.S. to counter other such launches. Wait a minute, orbital, space, that's probably the one they're going to focus on. Gary Seven, meanwhile, is awake and in confinement. Nothing stands between him and freedom, except for a burly red shirt and a force field. Luckily, he has... 
Um, is that a sonic screwdriver? Kind of looks like one. Disables the force field and makes the security guard kind of loopy. Okay, it looks and acts like a sonic screwdriver. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are still debating Gary Seven. Who is he? Why is he here? Hey, where is his cat Isis going? His cat, which Spock finds himself strangely drawn to, and which Gary Seven seems to have real, informative conversations with. Isis is headed to the transporter room. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy arrive just in time to see Isis and Gary Seven beam away. Act 2. Welcome to New York City, 1968. Gary Seven has a special transporter through which he materializes from inside the safe and behind the bar. Kind of makes his office half madman, half get smart. Both Isis and Gary Seven are bothered by how primitive Earth is. That's cool, though. They won't be here that long. Gary Seven just needs to find out where his Earth agents are. Through a bit of sparring with the giant hidden computer in his office, we find out that Gary Seven is actually a supervisor, not a field operative. His mission, and the mission of the missing agents, is to keep Earth from destroying itself. Today and every day. That's why he and the others like him were taken from Earth 6,000 years ago and raised on this faraway secret planet. Convinced of his identity, the computer starts the search for the missing agents. Back aboard the Enterprise, Kirk and Spock are preparing to beam down to find Gary Seven. Spock's concerned, however. He and Kirk may end up screwing up the future. Yeah, yeah, but Kirk has to do something. He and Spock beam down in 20th century garb with Scotty radioing directions on how to find Gary Seven. Meanwhile, a sort of dizzy-seeming blonde rushes into Gary Seven's office. She works there, though it turns out she has no idea what there actually is. Seven assumes she's one of his missing agents, though he's eventually convinced that not only is she not, she has no idea about him, no idea about her employers, and no idea about the amazing hidden technology all around her. She's a front. Roberta Lincoln, a secretary employed by the missing agents. Smarter than she seems, according to the computer. Seven begins letting her in on a few secrets. He may need her help. He produces fake credentials identifying him as CIA. Now, he's got work to do in his office. The computer has some bad news. The agents he seeks are dead. Nothing nefarious. Simple car accident. And their mission, setting the orbital platform for nuclear weapons being sent up today by the U.S. to malfunction, that mission is incomplete. So he'll have to do it. Meanwhile, Kirk and Spock have found Seven's office. Roberta Lincoln tries to distract them, then calls for the cops. Seven... Wow, Seven abandons Roberta, teleporting away in his wall safe. He materializes on a rocket pad. 60 minutes to launch. One hour to... Save the Earth, maybe? Act 3. Kirk and Spock are rifling through Seven's things. He's headed for that rocket pad. Pursued by a couple of police officers, the Enterprise officers and the cops are beamed up to the Enterprise. The cops are immediately beamed back down to Seven's office, all within full view of Roberta Lincoln. Gary Seven, meanwhile, sets to setting the rocket for malfunction, thanks to a bit of stealth, his cat Isis, and his trusty sonic screwdriver. Aboard the Enterprise, Scotty bounces signals off an old-style weather satellite to get some great views of the rocket. But he's not looking at the rocket, he's looking for Gary Seven. If he can find him, he can beam him out. Kirk and Spock will beam down and search for Gary Seven on foot. Well, they would if they hadn't beamed right in front of a security guard. Now the two are taken to mission control. 
Back at Seven's office, Roberta Lincoln is yelling at the computer interface that she saw Seven talking to earlier. It won't respond, but that's just fine with her. She quits anyway. Or she was about to until she stumbled upon Seven's secret safe slash transporter. Seven, meanwhile, is on top of the rocket, completing his mission of malfunction. Kirk and Spock are being grilled by security. Who are you? What were you doing? Stony silence. But the countdown will proceed. Now, a lot starts happening at once here. Scotty spots Seven on top of the rocket. Roberta tinkers with Seven's secret safe slash transporter. Scotty beams Seven aboard the Enterprise, though he only shows up there for a second. Roberta's tinkering has brought Seven back to the office. It's okay as far as he's concerned. He's completed the malfunction part of his mission. Well, part of that part. And the rocket is away. Act 4. The computer tells Gary Seven that he can take control of the rocket and make it malfunction from here. Roberta is spooked. She goes to call other authorities, but is stopped by Seven's sonic screwdriver. Mission Control picks up on the malfunction. They go to set the rocket on self-destruct, but they're locked out. Seven has set the warhead to explode. And now, it's falling to Earth. Various military organizations on Earth know part of what's going on, and they're starting to freak out. The Enterprise considers blowing the warhead up in space, but then they would be exposed. Roberta gets the drop on Gary Seven. She has to stop him from screwing up her country's rocket. He tells her if she doesn't let him finish, though, she'll start World War III. Scotty calls down to Kirk, which distracts the guard holding Kirk and Spock. One nerve pinch later, they're able to beam away. Back at the office, Gary Seven lays it all out for Roberta. I'm a human, raised on another planet, sent here to save the Earth. Roberta wants to believe. She knows the Earth is kind of screwed up. Still, this story is kind of screwed up. Just then, in walk Kirk and Spock. Kirk sets Spock to work on blowing up the warhead, which is what Seven says he wanted to do. But it has to be done right. Done right, the world will realize how close the planet came to destruction and change its ways. Optimism, thy name is... Gary? Spock is having no luck blowing up the warhead. Kirk's not sure what to do, though Spock says he'll pretty much have to go with his gut. Kirk lets Gary Seven do his thing, which, good news, was to blow up the warhead at exactly the right time and save the world. Summing up the mission for his report, Seven says despite Enterprise interference, everything came out okay. Spock and Kirk counter, however, that the warhead blew up exactly where and when their history said it did. And would... So the Enterprise didn't actually interfere. It was part of the whole thing the whole time, through all time. History also shows that today's near disaster led to international treaties banning such orbital platforms for nuclear weapons. Seven asks about more of his future history, though Kirk and Spock say Gary Seven and Roberta Lincoln will have to live it out for themselves. Also, Isis can be a very attractive woman, not just a cat though how and why she wasn't before aren't made clear in this episode. But hey, maybe they will be when it becomes a series. To be continued. Oh, except for that part. So I guess, the end. You know, Ken, it's really gratifying to know that in the future, there is no frisking. Because uh, had Gary Seven been frisked, they would have gotten his, uh, his servo, his his sonic screwdriver. But well, uh, that's not how they do it on the Enterprise. Well, the beauty of the uh, of the 
servo or sonic screwdriver or whatever is it can always be you know it can be for gary seven whatever he needs it to be it can be for the doctor whatever he needs it to be Mm -hmm. there's a pretty good chance they would have come across and said what is this a pen what's he gonna do with the pen hey don't (laughs) don't stab me in the neck you otherwise you know keep your pen and uh you know because there may be some charts for you to fill out later exactly we're gonna need to get your uh your waiver on this because we really have no idea you know, the long-term yeah. effects of any of this stuff on somebody from whatever planet it is you're from whenever it was you got there. Right. Yeah. Um, it, you know, just like the Enterprise crew, I was watching this thinking, you know, next week I'm just going to routinely go back in time uh, just yeah. to observe. and uh, <laughs> But also I'll be buying toys. This is this is what we do now. Well, not buying mm-hmm. toys, but yeah, this is totally what we do. It, it, not even like an explanation at the beginning of it. Like, no. what, was it not risky that time that they decided to go back in time? I mean, was that mm-hmm. not like a, a we're not sure if we can do this? Yeah, kind of thing. And now, and I seem to remember in Star Trek Four, which of course is out of this timeline, but I seem to remember them saying, "Oh, we could try it, but it's dicey." Right. And in this one, they're just like, "Oh yeah, so we're back in time, uh, watching TV. Well, not TV, but you know, watching yeah. Earth." Not, not even the pretense of an accident. <laughs> they, had, they ended up back there and they're like, oh, man, now we got to go through that whole slingshot around the sun thing again. Reroll that footage. Right. Yeah. Or even just a couple of minutes of it's always risky, but, but you know, we've got to go. Mm-hmm. And also yeah. why these guys? Right. And also right. if you're trying to figure out how something was averted, maybe go a day or two early. I mean, yes. because there's no guarantee. They actually, the thing that they get there to watch is happening in like an hour and 20 minutes right. <laughs> right. when they right. get there. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave myself a little buffer, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, mm-hmm. because it also, I mean, generally speaking, whatever is going to potentially destroy the earth, uh, probably going to start more than an hour and 20 minutes before it potentially destroys the earth. Well, you know, when I've got about an hour and 20 minutes to kill uh, before something could potentially destroy the earth, uh, I tend to think about where I can find a good taco truck. Uh, fortunately, in L.A., that's pretty easy. And fortunately, in this episode, uh, it's pretty easy because there's one right in the uh, the launch facility. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's, this, there's a shot of this red truck and a bunch of people like grabbing their coffee and stuff. And I, I thought, wow, that's that that seems close. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure, honestly, why that bothers you so much. Though, I mean, this happens to me all the time. Oh, oh, okay. I didn't I mean, realize. You know, yeah, it's yeah. an hour before launching an orbital platform or delivering nuclear warheads. You know, and you, yeah, you get the munchies. Oh, sure. Okay. You know, or maybe you don't want to. Maybe you don't want to fall asleep, so you go out for a cup of coffee, lest you accidentally, you know, hit the eject pod button. Or yeah, no, don't you know, jettison or, pod. Yeah, don't or, do. That. Or blow up the warhead button. <laughs> right. You know. Because yeah. those are probably laying around all over the place, too. Yeah, I was kind yeah. of amazed at the lack of security. That was, yeah. that was really kind of, it, again, it, it, a little get smart. I mean, it, chaos would pull up in a truck like that, right. you right. know, and, uh, and, and do something to sort of mess the whole thing up, starting, starting I believe, with poisoning the coffee. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. And it seemed like they were tourists, which was kind of funny. They were just sort of wandering. Like, it didn't really look like they were working there necessarily. Maybe yeah. they would. Hey, hey, let's let's hang out and watch this nuclear orbital platform go up. Yeah. Um, I also like the fact, I didn't mention that, but I also like the fact that the mission commander, it's like, oh, time to do the last check. I'm going to hop in my Ford Cordova or whatever that was. <laughs> drive drive over and stand around under the rocket. We got 15 minutes left. Yeah, I'm just going to stand around. I'm going to go up the steps really quickly. I'm going to come down and then tell them to lock the elevator. Now, nice. in fairness, it is sensible to lock the elevator because, seriously, you just let a food truck drive onto a military installation. <laughs> right. 
for quite possibly one of the biggest days ever. But yeah, there's um, yeah, you know, we know a bit more now. I'll put it that way. Yeah, we've uh, you and I, I would imagine, especially watched a lot of uh, watched a lot of space shuttle launches. Nothing's getting close to that except for all those poor cormorants or you know whatever kind of birds those were that you know <laughs> right. regularly got fried by the right. space shuttle taking off. Right. Otherwise, nobody was going anywhere near it. So no. It, it, no. it was a simpler time, 1968, despite you know the world nearly ending four times a day. Yeah. Did, did you notice that point, though, when uh, Kirk, you know, a- after we've met Gary Seven and Kirk makes that ship-wide announcement, they're in the conference room, and he, he basically, in my mind, my translation, he basically says, uh, hey, if any of you know what's going on, uh, or you have any suggestions, just chime in, please. <laughs> this is one of those all-hands meetings where there are no stupid ideas. No, no, right. stay at your station, but... Okay, here's the thing. This this is where I realize that we are we are far too geeky. So he makes that call, mm-hmm. right? And he immediately goes to navigation, and there's Chekhov, and he's sitting in one place. And so he sits there, and he says what he's going to say, and then he calls to Scotty. Scotty's got a tracking cam. Yeah, Scott, right. Scotty walks around while he's making his report to Kirk. Yeah, which means he's either got like a robot camera, a remote mm-hmm. control camera, or a cameraman. Mm-hmm. You know, saying, "All right, Mister Scott, we're coming to you in twenty. Be ready. Okay, Mr. Scott. Okay, five, four, three, and then he cues yeah. him because you don't say two and one because you don't no, get picked don't. up, right? But uh, yeah, yeah, I know. Okay, so we're making fun. Let's 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 say something very serious about this. That's not one okay. of the topics of the show. Okay. Um, I don't know if it was the import of what they were doing or if it was the guy who plays Gary Seven. What was his last name Lansing? Uh, Robert Lansing. Yeah. Uh-huh. I don't know if it was Lansing's acting or what. There is real anguish. When we find out that his missing agents were killed. And I will be honest, um, in the two or three times that I watched the episode, um, I actually felt it. I mean, mm. because, and there's something about it. I don't know if it's the writing or if it's his gravitas or what, but he just, he plays everything very understated. I mean, there, he doesn't raise his voice once, I don't think. And and there's just something, you know, he's already said that this planet is sort of, even though he is a man, he is a human mm. being of this time with what seems like an unnatural affection for a cat until we find out, you know, hubba yeah. hubba. Yeah, right, later. right. Um, you know, he, he's just this very sort of standoffish guy. And yet there does seem to be something about once he finds out that his two agents just died in a car wreck, it wasn't even, it wasn't even in the line of duty. It was just, that's dumb. I mean, it's, yeah. just, it's like a dumb, like fragility and tragedy I mean, I that that to me was honestly probably the 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 most well acted, um, if not the most poignant part uh, mm-hmm. of this episode. And now we can go back to making fun of dumb stuff if you want. Uh, to. No, no, I was to say I, I agree with you about Robert Lansing. He's kind of got this Lee Marvin, James Coburn vibe, like you know, tall, lean, but got the kind of little bit of craggy face, and he's got that serious voice you know so yeah i he he sold the things that he needed to to sell and the idea of the tragedy of a car wreck um is well again kind of ripped from the headlines you know everybody can kind of relate to that speaking of the cat um spock of all people he 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 makes a point of saying that he is just strangely drawn to that cat very different from uh cat's paw where he says that the cat is what the most fearsome <laughs> creature, you know. Yeah. Um, but well, he's really into this cat. And you have to wonder if his attitude would change uh, once we 
are once it's revealed that the cat is actually a woman. But, well, let's back up a minute, though. We know that Spock has acknowledged that cats can be seen as evil, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We do know from the Omega Glory that Spock is, in fact, the devil. Oh. So it's, oh, it's yeah. actually quite possible that, you know, this is just a natural progression from him. Oh, he'll so he'll right. be sacrificing goats in his quarters in no time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have that to look forward to. Fun fact. The original title of this episode was not Assignment Earth. The original title of this episode was Assignment. Go back in time and blow something up without blowing up the world while finding out about another race of super beings about which we'll never speak again. Also, there's a cat. We're on familiar ground here, revisiting the 1960s and trying not to change history, um, kind of like tomorrow's yesterday. Um, and then, you know, revisiting significant historical milestones, periods of crisis, like uh, City on the Edge of Forever. Um, and, I, you know, it, you hate to kind of keep hammering the, the same message, but I, I feel like the real magic of a story like City on the Edge of Forever is the emotional heart. You know, that, that is first and foremost a love story. And this is much more about the adventure, just the, the situation that they find themselves in. Do we trust Gary? Do we not? Um, how will this play out if the rocket goes up and, and completes its mission? Um, so it's a little bit hard to be emotionally invested in it. Um, but I will give them props for doing something right by giving it that here and now edge for audiences in 1968. You know, you, you're sitting there watching it. And you see stock footage of the launches that you have just watched on TV, you know, Mm -hmm. weeks or months before. So that's kind of cool to to really drive this home. And it's almost kind of hard to talk about this episode in terms of its morals, meanings and messages without just specifically referencing the 1960s. Um, There are other things to be pulled out of it. But uh, but I I thought that that was kind of the, the unique uh, intrigue of this story. Well, I mean, it's okay with me that you, I mean, if you have to, I mean, first of all, there are things to pull out of it, as you say, but it's okay with me if this was an episode that was geared specifically for 1968, because this was an episode that was made specifically for 1968. Mm -hmm. You and I were at a uh, Star Trek convention one time. I (laughs) I can't even remember how long ago now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where you said it's a, for the actors, the same question is always asked first, and well, not not first because there are some wacky first questions actually. But the same sure. question is always asked first, and the same answer is always given. Did you have mm-hmm. any idea that this many years later we would still be talking about this show? And the answer is no. Right. Maybe in his wildest dreams, Gene Roddenberry thought this is going to go on for fifty, sixty, a hundred, who knows, two hundred years. Maybe they'll still be talking yeah. about Star Trek when we're actually in the stars. They'll be watching reruns saying. Oh, that's what I should have done. I should have crossed circuit A to circuit B. <laughs> yeah. You know, they were making a show for 1968 at the time, and it was a show that maybe said, we're going to get past 1968, but it was still a show for 1968. Yeah. So if we end up having to reference that and say, well, that's where the messages are, well, then that's where the messages are. Now, all that said, City on the Edge of Forever may be the quintessential time travel episode. This one is so much more trippy. Mm-hmm. to me and just oh, yeah. just because of one thing at the very end where um okay well I, I guess there are a couple of questions first of all what if the prime directive wh- where does the prime directive play in when we're talking about your own past right mm-hmm. so i'm from the 23rd century i go back to you know 300 years or 200 years and here i am now in the in the tw- oh, 300 years 20th century 
um, and things are about to get screwed up. Can I go ahead and monkey with that? Or, or do I run the risk of actually you know, messing up this developing society by doing that? At the same time, it turns out in this case, if they hadn't screwed around with it, um, they would have winked out of existence. Because it turns out there was never a time that the Enterprise did not come back from the future to get involved in Gary Seven's mission. Yeah. Which hurts my head. Yeah. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> if you think about it, there has to have been a first time, right? Even if we think, you know, that, okay, so the universe has always been, and it's always going to be in some form, okay. By the way we measure time, there has to have been a first time to go through 20th century Earth, right? <sighs> we have to go yes. through 20th century Earth to get to 23rd century Earth. If there hadn't been a 23rd century interference, though, in the 20th century, we never would have made it to the 23rd century, at least not in the same way. And we know that because the second Kirk does what Kirk feels like Kirk has to do. Kirk does not wink out of existence. Mm -hmm. Thus, the very first time that we went through this for the first time, there were already people from 300 years in the future back here saying, no, 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 cross circuit A to circuit B. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, and, you know you know who you have to ask this? Oh, no. Gary Seven. No, the Guardian. Oh, maybe. Where's the Guardian when you need him? Because, you know, we, we did the opposite thing in City on the Edge where, where we showed the alternate history and right. said, no, 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 we cannot change this history. We cannot make it better. Right. We have to go through this terrible thing in order to end up where we are now. That doesn't, yeah. that doesn't really help me, unfortunately, though, because the Guardian's not here. The Guardian's on whatever planet. I yeah, no, I'm not trying to help you. I'm, I'm just trying to obfuscate and confuse. Well, <laughs> you can't do any more obfuscation and confusion, though, than what already happened. The Enterprise <laughs> is sent back to find out how disaster was averted on a particular day in 1968. But it turns out the disaster was only averted by the Enterprise being there on that day in 1968, which it would not have been had the disaster not been averted. Yeah, it should have already been in their record banks. And they were like, oh, I guess we can sit this one out. <laughs> already <laughs> happened <laughs> either that or uh, oh spock spock we're a minute and a half behind you're supposed to be standing over there by now yeah right i would i right. I, I will say i would love to read kirk's report or hear kirk's report on this no. one. like <laughs> no no you wouldn't <laughs> captain's log okay this is gonna sound weird but stick with me all right i know you guys <laughs> weren't even sure about this whole sending me back to the past thing but turns out if you hadn't uh we wouldn't be here today Kirk yeah. I mean, is that, is that it's like Jeff Spicoli trying to do like a history report or something by the time it's all done? I think it's just not going to make any sense at all. Oh, it's a mess. So, it's, but, but I don't think it's a mess. I mean, honestly, I had a tremendous amount of fun with that part of it. I mean, well, sure. that's, this actually weighs in its favor as far as I'm concerned. Just like if you can just, if you can just make me stop for like, because I have no idea how long I've been thinking about it, to be honest with you. It's, it's, it's possible that I actually came back and told myself I needed to think about it longer. Oh, man. I know. I know. These things happen, apparently. Let me get your mind off of that for a minute. Because I'm going to talk about Roberta for like two seconds. All right. And, and just say that in a story like this, I, I mostly like it when you have a character like Roberta because – She's the proxy for the audience. You're supposed to see the world through her eyes. You know, oh, wow, look, this guy has advanced technology, and I'm just trying to follow along the story with them, you know. Um, and sometimes it works. I, I feel like in this story it doesn't necessarily work because she's played so so innocent. I don't want to say dumb, but, but just 
you know, kind of two-dimensional. Um, and, and I think at this point in Star Trek, maybe it would have worked better if Assignment Earth is its own thing. Um, but I think at this point in Star Trek, we're trying to see the story through the eyes of the Enterprise crew. We're already familiar with them. We already know their motivations. And so really, they are our entry point into the story. So I, I kind of have mixed feelings about Roberta. I don't want to go down the whole sexist path or, or not, <laughs> you know. Um, well, her but it's her, kind of a two-dimensional her, character to me. Well, her skirt was short. But it I mean, was. I honestly yeah. think that's the most you can say about how sexist this is. I mean, and, and we know that she is not nearly as dumb. I don't feel like she was – I don't huh, – what's the best way to put it? I don't feel like She's, Roberta Lincoln was a dumb character. I think Roberta Lincoln was playing a dumb character, and I'm not talking about Terry Garr. No, no, I know. I yeah. think Terry Garr played her fine, but the computer actually says, uh, you know, her IQ is higher than she lets on. Didn't say lets on, but, I mean, that's the impression that we get. Mm. She's quicker on the uptake than she wants people to know, and to be honest with you, I know somebody in my life right now who is like that. It took me a long time to realize how sharp she was, and the and the reason that she presents herself. I don't know. I don't know why she presents herself that way, but I've talked to enough people now, and I've seen it enough myself to know she's not nearly as ditzy as she pretends to be. I don't know if it's disarming. I don't know if she feels like she's going to get a better sense of people if they don't have a better sense of her. I don't know what it is, but I, I felt like that's what Roberta Lincoln was doing too, not what Terry Carr was doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I will say. Um, it seems to me, Roberta, I mean, there are a couple of things going on with her character. First of all, she may actually be trying to appeal to the kids who are watching Star Trek at that point, And she actually says something along those lines, like, you know, right. us kids today are crazy because, you know, right. we think the world's going to explode and we're not even sure if we're going to make it to 30. But more than that, I don't know. I mean, I was never one of those kids that watched Star Trek and thought I can be a scientist or I'm going to go to space. You know, I was one of those kids who watched Star Trek who then said, "Ooh, cool. What else is on? You know, I was always looking for other science fiction. Had this show made it, I mean, she might actually be uh, the person, you know, you got to be a special kind of person, I think, you know, to watch Star Trek and go, well, I want to pilot a starship. So what field can I go into? But you don't have to be a special kind of person, I think, to watch somebody and say, wow, as out of hand and crazy as everything seems, I can power through. And that, it seems to me, is sort of her appeal. Yeah. She might be the message to kids like, you know, okay, so you're not super smart. Okay, so you're not a Vulcan. Okay, so you don't have a laser. You can probably still do something to make the world a better place, which I'm assuming is the kind of character she was going to be. Right, right. And I do like that thing about her. And and, and it is – you know, we, we only have, what, 20 minutes of screen time with her. Less than that, actually, because she's not in all of the scenes with Gary Seven. Right. Um, so so I do like that as sort of the, the point of reference for the audience to, to be able to go along that ride. Uh, the Man from U.N.C.L.E. started out with that premise where you have the innocent who is the, the person – and in terms of storytelling, the person from the audience who is caught up in the spy intrigue that is the story of the week. Um, and it's very effective sometimes. It's not effective other times. But I think at a certain point with Man from Uncle, you just wanted to see Napoleon and Iliad doing cool things. <laughs> you know, you didn't necessarily have to have that other character there. So it would have been interesting to see how she played out. Um, but yes, I, I agree with you that when she works, and I don't think she always works, but when she works, um, she is that uh, that bridge. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. She she is that bridge to allow you to say that there's a place here for everybody. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe she would have grown into something a little beyond the ditzy blonde secretary. I, bear in mind, she's being hit with all this stuff. What did we say? Gary Seven arrives in New York with like an hour and a half, I think, to save the world. So we watch her. I mean, it's an hour and a half of real time, if you want to call it real time. So, mm-hmm. you know, forgive her if she ends up seeming a little ditzy and <laughs> confused by the whole thing because it's an hour and a half that she's found out about super intelligent whatever and talking computers and the cat that turns into a person back into a cat and there's the starship and there's the future and lasers and <laughs> cops showed up at her door and her bosses, by the way, are dead. Okay, she found out all this stuff in the last hour and a half. So right. maybe a little slack should be cut. Okay, I'll cut her some slack. Um, there's something, I, I keep going back to the original pitch idea for this show about how it was pitched as here and now. And when the Enterprise arrives in 1968 and Spock says this was a point of crisis, um, it made me think, well, now here we are decades removed from the audience who saw this in 1968 and the people who wrote this for an audience in 1968. And I think every generation thinks that they are in a time of great crisis or the greatest crisis. And maybe that's not such a bad thing. Um, in just terms of keeping us on our toes, <laughs> you know, we, what, what are the crises today or in the early 21st century anyway, you know, there's, there's still not agreement on things like, uh, climate change and how, how to approach that, um, as a problem. You know, there are a lot of people who are just not on the same page about how we handle these crises. Um, and, I look at the at the, the history of 1968. Um, I don't think I've actually told you this, Ken. When I was in college, I worked on a documentary about 1968. That, yeah. that was the yeah. It was the year lifted for this documentary, and and it was just sort of looking at the good and the bad of what was going on in that year. Um, and it, the, the the parallels with Star Trek are really interesting. You know, you, you had two major American assassinations that year. You had Martin Luther King Jr. had Robert Kennedy. In fact, the King assassination happened days after this episode aired. Hmm. So incredibly prescient. Uh, You had the protests at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. You had continued civil rights unrest. Um, You had the expansion of the Vietnam War after the Tet Offensive, which started in early 1968. Get to later 68, Nixon won the election by half a percent of the vote, and it was 43 percent of the popular vote. Uh, You had students taking over Columbia University. If you haven't seen that footage, it's great. (laughs) It's really incredible. Um, And then at the end of the year, you finally have this glimmer of hope with Apollo 8. That was the first manned Apollo mission to make it to the moon. And do an orbit of the moon. They're the first human beings to see the far side of the moon happen in late 1968. It it was a watershed year. And it's understandable that there are people who would think that they were not going to see the end of 1968. And they were not going to see 1969 and 70 and 71 and beyond. So this TV show being a slice of that era is pretty incredible. I, you know, it, hats off to them. Of course, they didn't know that they were making this show then that you could look back on in history to see that. Something that is so specific 
about this episode. Um, the, the mission to avert war by destroying this launch platform sent up by the Americans as a response to Soviet aggression. That's the other big thing here is that we were in the middle of the Cold War and that Cold War was heating up. You know, Bay of Pigs was only a few years before. So this is fresh on the minds of, of the audience. Um, I, I wonder, though, it, it, is this the kind of response though, that Kirk was all for in a private little war? He's like, well, it, they've got weapons. We've got to help out the other side with weapons here. And it seems like, well, if the Soviets have, you know, if, if they're threatening with nuclear weapons, well, shouldn't the Americans have this launch platform with nuclear weapons? Well, that's a, I mean, you're talking about two different things. I mean, yeah. yes, Kirk would have decided that that would actually be what we would need to do based on what was said in a private little war. But again, I think we decided that a private little war was actually an examination of what was going on right that moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what Kirk decided. I don't know that, you know, I think it was Gene Roddenberry who wrote a private little war. I don't think we decided that he would necessarily believe that that would be the best thing to have happen. Right, right. I mean, our, our, my feeling anyway was that he was sitting over his typewriter pulling his hair out as much as he was typing words because something mm. like that would have to be so frustrating. There's a very different thing that's happening here with Gary Seven. He is going to – he is literally going to take everyone to the brink of nuclear annihilation. Yeah. Not, not everyone but a whole city and he is literally going to take them to the brink to the point that – I mean the whole thing is so close that if, if, if Kirk – does not get out of his way, then that's going to go ahead and happen. Uh, an H-bomb is going to fall on a city and destroy one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very different thing. It's a little reminiscent, actually, of The Watchmen, or a little reminiscent of, I'm trying to think of what else, well, a little reminiscent of Nero, actually, if you go to the Star Trek <laughs> reboot in 2009. Suddenly, uh -huh. we all have to face this enemy. Let's do the Watchmen so that we're not stepping out of the timeline. Okay, there you go. Suddenly, we all have to face this enemy. In the movie, it was Dr. Manhattan. In the comic books, it was actually better, I think, because it was this unknown alien something or other. So it wasn't even anything that we could like reason with. It was just this thing that all of a sudden destroyed massive numbers of people. Now, I'm not actually giving away the end. I know it sounds like I am, but there's there's a twist. So you can actually go back and read it if you hadn't, and you'll still find out. But the one thing that did happen after that was we all pulled together mm -hmm. as a planet in the Watchmen. And, and, and suddenly, you know, we're working on renewable energy, and we're not fighting each other anymore, and people are hugging in the streets, and, you know, all kinds of wonderful things are happening, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I don't feel like that's exactly what would happen in this case, though. We don't know that we have a Gary Seven who did this, so our assumption is, wow, the U.S. put up this nuclear warhead platform, and it nearly came down, and it nearly blew everything up. And so from then on, they're like, well, let's not do this anymore. Let's all be friends, and we'll outlaw these kinds of weapons. No, I think really what would happen is everybody would be like, hey, U.S., <laughs> yeah. way to nearly kill everybody. Tell you what, why don't you back off that? Right. Do you know what I mean? I don't. I don't right. know that we all would. You know, I don't know that "Kumbaya" was being sung around the world because one superpower nearly destroyed the planet. Yeah, I, I kind of seems to me that we've heard that one superpower has nearly destroyed the planet before, and we're right. and we're not singing "Kumbaya." Sadly, we all know the words, but we don't tend to get together and sing it. <laughs> I felt the same thing uh, as what what you just said when I was watching this. I kept thinking, well, first of all, Gary Seven had to decide on a or the the aliens who kind of are managing Earth's crises and and, and why 
I, they, they're just sort of benevolent. You know, what, what is their interest there? They're a very, very long way away, and they can hide their planet if they want to. So, you know, it's interesting that they would have any vested interest in, in what we're doing on Earth. Well, because don't, doesn't everybody want everybody to get along? I mean, I'm, I'm sort of stuck mm-hmm. on something that you said like five or uh, ten minutes ago now, and forgive mm-hmm. me, but I made the note. Um, isn't it best that we always feel like we're at a time of crisis? No. No, oh, no, it's not. no, 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 Kirk, it's not. <laughs> I mean, that's that's what you're doing. We can't we can't get to a place where we're sort of like, ah, okay, things are good now. I mean, there always has to be something to sort of stir us and make us what build bombs, beat each other no. up. No, 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 no. Okay. No. Well, then, no, no, then, no. It, it, it's not that we're. It's not that that it's best that we're at a moment of crisis, but it, but it is best that we can equally face the crisis and determine what that crisis is and the way out of it. You know, okay. th- this was a big one. We're painting with a broad brush here. Uh, and in this case, it was the nuclear threat. Okay. What, there, you, what you said earlier is we always think we're at a stage of the greatest crisis and maybe that's a good thing. Uh, maybe it's not a bad thing <laughs> all of the time. Of course it's a bad thing, please, because doesn't that just then uh, like, you know, prod us to go ahead and build other things then to fight the crisis? I mean, you're you're wondering whether or not, you know, the arms race is a good idea. That's how we get the arms race, right? Oh, man, they've got that thing. I need to build a bigger one. Oh, no, now they've got a bigger one. I need to build two more the size that I had. Plus, I'm going to secretly start working on an even bigger one than that. I but mean, here's the thing. Gary decided on a time to show up. You know, the, the, the arms race had already been happening, mm-hmm. and it's sort of like good enough to allow all these nuclear weapons to be built, to allow all these smaller skirmishes and, and aggressions to occur. But then it's this one. It, it's the, we, we, you know, how did that point get to be the one where the benevolent aliens decide to step in and say, well, no, okay, this is too far. The other things, the other things weren't too far, but this one is too far. Dude, we have no idea how long they've been doing this. Remember, Gary didn't come here to stop this. Gary came here to find out why he had not heard from his two agents for the past three days. Mm -hmm. Okay. So these guys are always here. These guys are always here doing what they're doing. We don't even know that the two that are in New York are the only two that these benevolent aliens have sent. Yeah. I wasn't talking about Gary Seven anyway, though. I wanted to talk about you and Kirk and both of you with this, you know, pathological need to always feel like something's going to get you. I mean, because, you know, something is always going to get me. I mean, there's a big difference. Oh, okay, okay. I forgot. But but why you? Here's actually something that I was wondering, and this is going to take us a little bit sideways. Mm-hmm. The good news is I'm not going to, you know, break the Star Trek timeline. I'm just going to get out of Star Trek entirely. I was wondering if we should actually be watching this as an episode of Star Trek or if we should look at it as just another fun thing that Gene Roddenberry used to do. Because mm-hmm. this reminded me actually of uh, the Quester tapes. Sure. I know you've seen them. Yep. I feel fairly certain that a number of people listening have not. Um, it's available on YouTube. It's a crappy, crappy copy. Um, and the sound is a little bit off. But if you search for Quester tapes, you should be able to find it. Um, it has a special place in my heart because it's about a robot, you know. Yeah, that, that's sen- and you got mad love for the robots. That's sentient and that has actually been built to sort of you know help the world, but something happens to the robot, um, and he doesn't have all of his programming, and so he's kind of he's got the benevolent thing down, but he's kind of got to go through the earth and and sort of find out what it is that he needs to do and and you know to make things better, sort of starting from where he is, but with his you know over human abilities. I, I guess the, the message of a, of a show like that and maybe a show like this one as well. 
is, you know, even though you've got the technology, you've got the advances, I mean, it's not just the technology that's going to save you. Uh, you see also iMud, in Kirk's opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, Questor is a ridiculously advanced Android from a long line of ridiculously advanced Androids, but he's still got to stumble, you know, in the mud like like the rest of us. He's got to walk around and, you know, figure out day-to-day how to get past mankind's problems. Gary Seven is the same way. He comes from this, you know, super advanced whatever. He's the height of human development. He's physically perfect. He seems to be enlightened. He's got great computers, huge technology at his beck and call. He's got this amazingly magical cat person who could maybe do something besides be a cat that he can talk to. But he's still going to stumble in the mud. He's still going to walk around and try to figure it out, you know, day by day by day. And mm-hmm. and that's that's kind of an interesting thing and I guess kind of a Gene Roddenberry thing too, right? I mean, we can still we got starships, we got teleporters, we got phasers. Uh, we can still get stymied by by greed. We can get stymied by you know uh, nationalism. We can get stymied by fear. I mean, no matter how advanced we are, we still sort of have to. We kind of have to keep a check on, almost like keep a check on our on our basis nature or our base instincts to make sure that that we don't you know muff up everything that we've worked for. <laughs> Time now to do what we do every week, assess the success of Gary Seven's cunning and Roberta's wackiness. Wait, I may be crossing some serious timelines here. Well, just like I said, I wasn't 100% certain whether we should actually look at this as an episode of Star Trek. Oh, sure, it starts with Star Trek credits, and, you know, it's got... Uh, Star Trek characters in it. It's actually got a lot of Star Trek characters in it. Just about everybody. Just about everybody. I wonder if that was part of making an appeal mm. to people who might, you know, watch it next season and go, who's the guy in the suit? <laughs> right. Anyway, just as I don't know whether we can consider this an episode of Star Trek, I wonder about asking the questions about the messages, morals, and meanings, and whether or not it stands the test of time. Still, it is the kind of thing we do. So I guess uh, I guess we'll throw that up to uh, Mr. John Champion. Does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned, sir? Well, it, you know, it, it was supposed to. I, I mean, it, it was supposed to in the respect that it, as a pilot, uh, they wanted this to go on and on and have several seasons of episodes to follow it. Um, and, and as a pilot, it kind of works. You know, you, you get all the groundwork laid. You introduce who these new people are and what the mission is and what we should expect to see week after week. Um, but honestly, I, I'm afraid that it would have ended up like a lot of other good but not great sci-fi shows of the late 60s. You know, look at Time Tunnel, um, getting into UFO, if you ever saw that Jerry Anderson show. And there's a lot of those that were kind of cool for the time, for a brief moment, and then they were gone. And sure, they, there's a little bit of a cult following for these, but nowhere near the impact that a show like Star Trek has. So, you know, would would this have lived up to the potential? Maybe not. Um, now, as an episode of Star Trek, I think it's good, but it's not great. Um, it's disjointed because that's how they planned to make this, was as a disjointed episode. So you go back in and cut it out and make a standalone promo film. And you can feel that. Um, so it, it, it suffers from that for sure. Um, I, I feel like Terry Gar is fun, uh, but she's kind of one note 
Um, it, you know, and, and who knows if, like I said, she would have grown beyond that uh, if the series had taken off. Um, I, I kind of like Gary Seven. He, he's a bit of the antihero. He, he's gruff and mysterious and cool. Um, he, he's got a certain vibe that probably would have fit well with that late 60s cool spy vibe. Um, but it may have just been too grounded in the here and now, which is no longer the here and now. So it kind of would have been this interesting relic to look at nearly, you know, five decades later. Um, well, I think that so, sort of, I think that sort of depends, though, on uh, partly on what you like and partly on how well it was carried off. I mean, I yeah. spy. Yeah. With uh, Bill Cosby and Robert Culp is a very, very, very dated show. Mm-hmm. But I think it still works amazingly well. And a lot of that has to do with the interplay between uh, Robert Culp and Bill Cosby. Sure. And honestly. I feel that way about Man from Uncle, you know, why, why I mentioned it earlier. It, it's cool because of the time in which it was made, you know. But, you know, we, we are a Star Trek show. <laughs> we are a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. So we have to ask if this holds up, I guess, as an episode of Star Trek. And I'm really on the fence. I, I think it's I think I think it's okay, but I can't get really excited about it one way or the other. Mm. Uh, the, there are a lot of episodes. It, it's sort of like when you go see a movie and you, and you come out and you just go like, okay, that was a movie, and you don't really love it and you don't really hate it. It it just sort of was the time that it took up and and it was a pleasant diversion. And I feel that way about this episode. It's interesting to look at it in the light of the production history. But as something that holds up against all the other great episodes of Star Trek, I'm kind of coming up at a loss here. How about you? Well, I mean, uh, trying to hold it up against all the great episodes of Star Trek may be your mistake. Try holding it up against the bad yeah. ones. Yeah. Would, you <laughs> well, rather, yeah. would you rather watch this again or would you rather watch Miri? Would you rather watch this again or would you rather watch um, Alternative uh, Factor? The Alternative Factor, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Would you rather watch this again or Operation Annihilate? I mean, I think, yeah. honestly, I would rather watch this again than all three of those. And sure. I even enjoyed The Alternative Factor. I yeah. like it. And I think I would still probably rather watch this. I think the message, I mean, uh, assuming that we can pull out the message that I pulled out, or maybe I'll go ahead and be happy with that one, where Mm -hmm. it's not our technology, it's not our advances that are going to get us through, but it's being human. Mm -hmm. And I can't believe that I'm the one that's saying that this week when normally that's kind of your line. But I I mean, assuming that that is one of the messages, then that absolutely holds up. Mm -hmm. Um, No, it's not a great episode of Star Trek, but we've seen worse episodes of Star Trek. I would say what this suffers from is, I mean, well, and it's obvious because they were shooting it as a pilot for something else. There's not enough Star Trek. I mean, before yeah. before we got to discover, discover documents or whatever, I think we're maybe 10 minutes. No, I guess it was Act 2. Mm-hmm. Once we're in Act 2 and Gary is in Gary's office and Gary's secretary comes in, I'm like, okay, so this was shot as a pilot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there's not even a moment. If you know anything about TV... I mean, and I don't know much about, you know, production and what have you, but if you know anything about TV, this screams pilot. Yeah. But yeah, it turns out it's not the worst pilot in the world. It's not like that, you know, like Rita Moreno, Paul Dooley, Golden Girls pilot that I watched <laughs> once. It was so bad and had nothing to do with anything. Almost like it has nothing to do with this, except <laughs> that it was very, very obviously a pilot that had nothing to do with the television show that you actually tuned into. Yeah. Yeah. I- 
I, I, that, that's kind of where I am with this. I, I, I think it, it, it's an episode that I, I wouldn't cringe <laughs> to ever watch again because there are things about it that I like. And, and looking at it as here is a slice of 1968 then you kind of go oh okay but we've dealt with things like time travel and prime directive uh, yay or nay uh, you know so much more intricately and so much more interestingly than we have here and and that's why as you said it doesn't feel like star trek I see. It, it's another show with special guest stars from star trek and yet i may go the other way again the fact that they don't hammer it home it makes it maybe a little bit more accessible I love the fact, mm-hmm. I mean, that whole thing I was talking about earlier about the trippiness of the time travel stuff, mm-hmm. I found that particularly trippy. And mm. and and even though they're a little smug about it at the end, Spock and yeah. Kirk are like, hey, jerk, yeah. if we hadn't <laughs> been here, you would have blown up the planet anyway. So this went exactly as it was supposed to. Mm-hmm. That hurts my head <laughs> because they were only there because everything didn't go the way it was supposed to and thus everything did. I can, I can get caught in that loop happily all, all day long. <laughs> oh, sure. It messes with my brain. <laughs> but that's okay. But you kind of like that. Yeah. I well, do. you know, when it comes to the messages, then you you said exactly what I was thinking. And, and that's that if we if we just look at this as Star Trek and as Star Trek trying to make a statement, um, then I kind of respond to this idea that says, hey, we will make mistakes. We kind of have to make mistakes. Our technology is outpacing our responsibility to use it, uh, as Gary Seven points out in his mission statement, because like all pilots, they just come right out and say what they're doing. Um, but, but dare we say it's one of those things that makes us essentially human, um, is to make those mistakes and then learn from them and persevere um also i I have to throw in ken and and really this is for you and it's for our entire listening audience please never trust a guy who says he's from the future and he's here trying to help um unless he actually is and then then let him blow up the rocket or i'll I'll throw in one other caveat Mm -hmm. unless it's me oh yeah yeah, yeah i forgot absolutely trust me if i say that and that is by the way a line that i use quite a bit (laughs) <laughs> so in that respect does the message hold up uh that people should listen to me when i say i'm from the future and they should do what i say yes absolutely <laughs> again assuming that we're taking the messages that we said we we're going to take from them i mean you know then yes they, they do hold up the one thing i will say is i'm always reticent to agree automatically with the one that says our technology has outpaced our ability to use that technology that's not always going to hold up i mean that that may hold up to an extent right now i don't know i don't honestly think it holds up as much right now as it did a few years ago although maybe i'm wrong i could be one of the sheep that's like you know well i am one of the sheep that regularly gives away private information i don't even know how because i click Mm -hmm. on something that says hey if you click on this we get everything and i'm like well sure because i want to play that game so maybe that is actually you know still the case i would like to think that it's not going to always be that is kind of an interesting thing about star trek we're often given this don't let technology run away with you you know Mm -hmm. kind of argument and yet there also seems to be this idea that technology is going to take care of most of the ills of humanity not all Mm -hmm. of them and maybe that's the other maybe that's the thing it's just you know it'll only take you so far i mean maybe that's them i don't i don't know 
Does it hold up today? I guess as much as it doesn't. I mean, go back to what was the one that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, the ultimate computer. Go back Mm -hmm. to the ultimate computer. The ultimate computer actually seemed to be an indictment of a computerized society. Well, I mean, there are some things about which to worry in that respect, but then there are some that aren't. I saw something on television the other day about the great blackout of 2003. Do you know about the great blackout of 2003? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it, yeah. it was started by one tree limb falling on one wire in Ohio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and because we weren't you know, quite as automated as we thought we would be and because we were relying on technology that had been around since, in some cases since the late 1800s, um, the whole thing fell apart. Our technology has now advanced enough that, okay, well, we're a little bit better with that. So, I mean, maybe a little bit more of a computerized society can sometimes be okay. So uh, does the message hold up? The message holds up where it holds up. Yeah. There are other places that it doesn't. I mean, maybe we run the risk of being too general when we say, you know, what these messages are. So let's say it holds up, but at least put an asterisk beside it. I like that. All right. All right. So uh, I, I can't believe it, Ken, that we have come screeching to the end of season two of Star Trek, the original series. It seems like only yesterday we were at the end of season one. And that can mean only one thing. It means that on the next episode, we're talking about Spock's brain, the beginning of season three. (laughs) And you think you're screeching now. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Overall I liked this episode, though I found Gary Seven's computer a bit hard to believe. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.